Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to our monthly webinar series. Today's topic is Common Defenses. Uh, this is the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Webinar Series. My name is Joe Jones. I'm a partner here at uh, uh, Lowe's Law Firm. I have with me my associate, Mike Gervolino, who's helping me today uh, give this presentation. Uh, this type of thing usually starts when uh, you have a client or your location basically uh, call in. They want to know something. Uh, do I have a viable defense? Which defense applies? And, of course, they call us to ask us that type of question. Uh, just as a reminder, this is our monthly webinar series. We do this uh, with New York Workers' Compensation on the third Monday of every month. And on the fourth Monday of every month, uh, we do the New Jersey series. And, of course, that's today as well, the New Jersey. Uh, also, by way of a reminder, uh, these webinars are recorded. Uh, they're available as archives in our, at our website. Uh, you can look at the New York and New Jersey ones that have been, already been recorded. Any of our future webinars, will, the same thing will happen. We'll record them and place them in our archives. Our law firm has a number of different resources available to you. Uh, we have, first of all, this webinar series. We have a handbook. Uh, my partner, Greg Lois, has actually uh, each year has done a, a book that he's printed out about New Jersey workers' compensation. Uh, if you need a copy of that book, feel, feel free to please email us. We'll get you a copy out right away. It's sort of a good overview of New Jersey and New York workers' compensation law, and it's a very good reference point. I still use it myself even uh, to look at occasionally here and there when you need some information. Let us know. We'll certainly get you a copy of that. We also have a newsletter that goes out uh, on various topics uh, that we talk about, both in New York and New Jersey. And, of course, we have our website itself uh, that you can see articles that we write uh, as well as uh, the archive of the webinars. You can also find out about, about all the uh, attorneys that work here. Okay. Um, there is a question and answer session part of this. Uh, we'll give the presentation first. That will be the first part of our yeah. webinar. And then if we have some time, we'll answer uh, a couple of questions. There should be a box on your computer. You could type those questions in. Please feel free to ask any questions you want, even if it's off topic. If uh, at the end of this webinar we can't get to them, Mike and I will uh, look at every question and answer by email at the very minimum uh, your questions, with, again, whether they're top, on topic or off topic. Okay, so today, what are common defenses uh, that you can present in a workers' compensation case? The defense, as you know, is, is presented in an answer uh, through this, the claim petition that's filed. There's various boxes we can check off and various things that we can list as some of these defenses. Again, this starts when you get a call from your insurer or your location. An accident just happened. Uh, they have a certain fact scenario, a fact pattern they want to discuss with you as to whether or not they should accept or deny this claim. Uh, there's a number of different defenses we're going to talk about today, uh, notice, statute of limitations, uh, intentional, recreational, personal actions, and lunchtime. We are specifically not talking about non-employee, in other words, whether someone is your employee or not. Uh, we're not talking about that defense because we actually did a webinar presentation of that last month. Um, next month, we're going to do the going and coming rule. Uh, those are a little bit more involved topics. That's why we sort of separate them uh, from the rest. So let's get started today. Uh, and again, we have a, a two-part uh, process here. We have the presentation, and then we'll uh, do questions and answers. So let's talk about our first topic today, which is going to be intoxication. Mike, why don't you take that one for us? Thanks, Jeff. Okay, so let's talk about our first defense today, and this is probably the most interesting and fun defense we have, and that is the defense of intoxication. Intoxication is a defense in New Jersey workers' compensation law under in the statute under Section 7. Uh, it states that if an employee is intoxicated and the accident or injury uh, arose because of that intoxication, then the injury will not be comp uh, compensable. However, the case law does state that has established that intoxication needs to be the sole cause of the accident. 
this happens to be very difficult to uh, prove. So essentially, uh, as we like to call this defense, is like a unicorn defense, in that everyone knows what a unicorn is, but they never really see it. It's very hard. Right. To, it's very hard to establish. This. We all know what it looks like, but no one's ever seen it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, this is difficult, and this comes up a lot. Um, you know, what's, what's important here, I think, for intoxication defense, or at least trying to, to, mm -hmm. to use that defense, is investigation. Yes. Uh, and it's going to be a common theme, I think, you see throughout all the defenses we're presenting today. Uh, proper investigation. Uh, you know, with an intoxication defense, you potentially could have maybe a car accident yeah. where there was a, a alcohol test sample taken or uh, maybe a hospital records where a blood sample was taken at the hospital, and you can certainly subpoena and get those records to see if, in fact, the individual's uh, blood alcohol content is significant enough to for yeah. him to be considered intoxicated. That's a good point, Joe. Just for a practical matter, you know, if some, an employee gets hurt and goes to the hospital and you happen to go to the hospital with them, you might want to tell the physician, please take a toxicology report so we can see if the employee was actually intoxicated. Because a lot of times when these people, uh, you know, if someone's hurt, they go to the hospital, the physician is not going to test for alcohol levels or anything like oh, that. Oh, right, because they don't know the fact scenario what got him to the hospital. Exactly. They don't know he's in the hospital. Okay, so that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing just to talk about here briefly uh, is, is drug use. Uh, drug yeah. use has become a much more common uh, cause of, of um, you know, people being under the influence of mm -hmm. something other than alcohol. Alcohol, there are set legal li limits. In New Jersey, it's 0.10 or below. But with uh, with drugs, it's sort of there's no federal, there's no standard as to yes. what the level is for you to be considered intoxicated. Exactly. So it's it very makes hard things yeah it makes things more complicated when you try and present this defense. All right, we do have a little uh, uh, presentation here as well. We'll get through that. Your employee's blood alcohol levels were 0.4, which is four times the legal limit for driving. He was intoxicated when he cut himself. All right, so Mike, what's going on here? So, yeah, as you can see, we have a chef, right, who um, drinks before he goes to work. He seems pretty intoxicated, and then he goes to work, and he uses knives, and he cuts himself. So what happens um, in, th what happened in this case is that he uses knives on a daily basis, right? He seems to be using knives on his job. employment. Yeah. And although the intoxication does appear to uh, help, well, not help, but causes the, re uh, the injury, it doesn't seem to be the sole cause, as he does use knives on a regular basis, and it is practical to think that he may actually cut himself while he's at work, even if he's not intoxicated. Right. So we go to the point here, the real issue, was this the sole cause? And based on this video, it seems like, that was not the sole cause of the video of the accident. Right? Okay. There are plenty of people who cut themselves, chefs that cut themselves at work without being intoxicated. Without being intoxicated, so, yeah. Right. It's it's a it's sort of a difficult thing to prove again, and that's where investigation is going to be is is uh, be very important in this type of scenario. Okay. The next topic is notice. Uh, this is a very common defense that's raised, uh, and it comes up a lot actually, uh, more than you probably think. Um, it's under Section 17 of the statutes. There, the Section 17 gives really a couple of different provisions. It gives a 14-day notice provision, a 30-day notice provision, and a 90-day notice provision. Uh, essentially, notice should be given within 30 days of the date of that accident. Uh, and if notice is given after 90 days, if the respondent can show that there's some kind of prejudice uh, involved, then it could be a bar actually to compensation. Now, for practical purposes, this doesn't happen a lot uh, in terms of it being a bar to compensation. The New Jersey workers' comp judges sometimes go out of their way to try and find compensation yeah. uh, for the petitioners. So it's kind of hard on our end to, to fight this type of thing. 
but a notice uh, defense is something important to raise. Uh, and what's great about it is it sets you up for something all respondents love and all employers love, Section 20 settlements. Yes, of course. So uh, it's, it's definitely something to, to bring out. Uh, typically, there's a fact scenario a couple of months after the accident. They're just finding out for the first time, the employer, that the accident happened. A lot of times, the filing of the claim petition is actually the first time that employer finds out or even insurer, or insurance company finds out that this accident happened. Mm-hmm. So um, the prejudice part of this and sort of what we have to prove in court uh, is sort of twofold. Uh, the respondent can show its prejudice, one, because of investigation. Mm-hmm. We lose the ability to invest, investigate an accident the longer away from time-wise away from that accident we are. Uh, witnesses disappear or leave the company. Um, maybe if a machine was involved, maybe the machine got replaced and, and, and stuff like that. So you lose sort of an advantage in investigation. The other part is that the respondent in New Jersey gets to control medicine and medical control. We lose that as well. Uh, we can regain it once we file an answer, but there could potentially be six months of you know unauthorized treatment, uh, bills adding up and stuff like that. And, and our goal is, of course, to get treatment to the petitioners, get them back to work as soon as possible. If we don't have notice, it's hard to do that in the time frame. Uh, we do have a scenario here, we'll, a little animation for you. Let's play through that. Greg, one of our employees brought him this medical note saying that he was injured at work four months ago. I asked around, and no one who was working that day remembers anyone being injured and no written report was made by the employee or anyone else. Can they file a worker's compensation claim? Okay, sort of like we just talked about, you have a situation here where uh, one of our employees brought in a medical note saying he was injured four months ago. Uh, he asked around, nobody remembers him being injured that day. There was no report made or anything like that. Um, so again, it's, it's a situation where investigation is going to be important. Uh, let me note here also that uh, I mean, there's two different types of notice. You could have actual notice where an employee says, uh, you know, I got hurt or files a report of some kind. But most of these cases uh, tend to involve constructive notice. Uh, the employee just doesn't show up to work for a week. And maybe you hear from co-employees that his, his back was hurting or something like that. Or the judges will sort of go out of their way uh, to create constructive notice if they find the right fact scenario. So, again, notice is a very important defense <laughs> to raise. It sets us up, for, I think, for a Section 20 settlement. Uh, and investigation is going to be really important. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. Mike, why don't you take this one, statute of limitations? Sure, statute of limitations. This is one of the more straightforward ones, so we'll touch on this briefly. Um, but for a traumatic acute injury, think of your typical slip and fall or your car accident case, uh, the petitioner or the employee has two years from the date of the accident or two years from the last time they received authorized treatment to bring a workers', comp- workers compensation claim. If they do not bring that claim within those two years, then they are barred from bringing the claim. Now, when we mention authorized treatment, we do not mean IMEs. Uh, that is something separate. We're talking about the last time they received treatment from their treating physician, okay, right. which was authorized, okay? Right. So if you have an IME or a need for treat exam or something like that where the doctor's just seen them one time. For these purposes, not, it does not count. Okay. Yes. So for occupational injuries, though, that's a different story. Occupational under Section 34 of the statute, says petitioners do not have a duty to report until two years from the time that they knew that they, or should have known, that the occupational disease came from the work-related injury. So, uh, practically speaking, it's typically, uh, for occupational disease claims, it's typically two years from the time they told their uh, attorney of the claim or they tried to bring the claim. Right, right. It's very hard to prove that they knew that this occupational claim was related to their injury. Right. And again, this is this is where investigation is going to be really important. Um, 
uh, what Mike's talking about is a lot of times the petitioners don't know why they were injured. They got some medical treatment. And, and when we talk about occupational claims, we're talking about like repetitive motion type things or pulmonary claims or uh, because of the environment that they worked in, stuff like that. So sometimes they don't know the cause. They've seen a lot of doctors. And it's not until they go to see their attorney uh, and sort of present all this information where the attorney sort of says, well, maybe you got, you know, maybe this is as a result of work. Yeah. So when, when Mike refers to that two years from that date, that's sort of what he's talking about. But I think as we discussed, like investigation is important here, right? Yeah, so really the best way to establish these claims is to go back into the medical records of the petitioner and look to see if you could see at any point he told his physician that, hey, like, I got injured and I think this is from a work-related accident. Right. So if you can go back and you can look in the medical records and say it happened like over, you know, three years ago he told his employer that, right. I mean, he told his physician that, then maybe you can match it up and say, oh, this is, you know, after two years and maybe this statute will actually apply. Right, so your goal there is investigation to see if, that issue ever came up yeah. prior, you know, past the two years, in which case it'll be barred by, by the workers' compensation court. So, okay. Uh, our next topic is intentional. Uh, this comes up in a couple of different ways. The, the least common of these ways is self-harm. Somebody hurts themselves at work on purpose, maybe suicide or, or purposely, you know, tries to hurt themselves somehow. Uh, that's very rare. It, it, it doesn't come up very often. Uh, the more common approach is intentional. A coworker or your boss or somebody purposely hurts you. Um, now, there's sort of two scenarios. This could be maybe an assault where somebody attacks you at work. That's kind of rare, too. That doesn't happen too too often where yeah, co-employees exactly. attack each other. Uh, the more common thing, I think, has to do with safety uh, issues, where maybe an employer tells you uh, we're removing the, the safety protocols of this particular machine because, it, you know, the employees will be much more efficient without it. Uh, in a construction setting, maybe they just don't take the time to shore up the sides of a trench or something yeah. like that. It's too expensive, takes too long, something like that. It's usually done in an efficiency type of theme as far as the employer itself. Let's look at this uh, animation and see what we have here. We have had a great year. Productivity is up since we modified the machines to remove all of the safety guards. Those guards were just slowing us down. Okay, so again, as, as we can expect here, uh, the employer is saying we had a great year, productivity is up since we modified the machines to, you know, remove all those pesky safety guards that get in our way. Uh, those guards were just slowing us down. And, of course, <laughs> the result is what's going to happen, somebody's going to get hurt. Uh, this is an example of an intentional injury. Uh, the important thing to remember here, I think, which is a common theme throughout all of these, is investigation. Find out as much as you can about what led to this. Uh, the other issue sort of to acknowledge here, sort of a red flag, I guess, that can be raised, is there's potentially a third-party case that the petitioner can bring against either the employer for that intentional act mm -hmm. or if there was some kind of safety issue where maybe a guard didn't work on a machine or so, something like that, a product's liability claim. So you could potentially be looking at a Section 40 lien issue here, or maybe you might be entitled to reimbursement of any workers' comp benefits that you're paid. So that is one that the safety issue comes up a lot. There's, you'll see a lot of times there'll be OSHA violations. Um, that are sort of you know, part and parcel of that as well. So, that's, again, it sort of raises the red flag of what to look for. All right, our next topic, recreational. You want to do that one, Mike? Yeah, sure. Okay. So let's talk about recreational injuries for a moment. Uh, as we're coming upon summer, you can see more and more people want to participate in the outdoor activities where uh, they play, you know, football, basketball, whatever outside. Uh, we even see sometimes where employers encourage this behavior as like a team-building activity. Um, so uh, let's talk about whether these recreational activities are compensable or not compensable, right? So uh, generally speaking, recreational activities are not compensable. This is your typical, like, after work, you and your buddy go outside, 
and you want to throw the football around the parking lot in your employer's premises, one of you one of you guys gets hurt. This is not compensable. So where do we draw the line, though? There are what draws the line um, really is whether it's mandated, whether the employer tells you you have to do this activity, or the employee uh, believes this is mandated. Whether the employee really thinks that the employer wants him to do this, like he has to do this as part right. of his activity. Like what happened in McCarthy versus Quest, the tug of war situation? Yeah, so that's a situation where the employer has a uh, company picnic and he has all the employees there. And he tells all the employees, I want you guys to go out there and compete. I he want just you wants guys to win. Yeah, he wants to win. <laughs> and, of course, someone goes out there, he gets hurt, you know, he suffers an injury. And, you know, the question is, is this compensable? Uh, the answer is yes, it is compensable. Because um, even if the employee did not have to go, he believed he had to go. He this thought the comments. From he the thought employer. that, yeah, from the comments of the employer, he thought it was really important for his job that he right. goes there and he, he participates and wins the tug of war. So that the, would be compensable. And then the, we have the DeLuca case. With this one, I like a lot. This comes up. Uh, this is another interesting one. Yeah, where um, Mr. DeLuca is the employer, and um, he's at a construction site with his employee Lorenzo, and he um, there happen to be ATVs there. So he tells Lorenzo, like, hey, I want to see you on the ATV. I want you driving around that track. So Lorenzo, once again, he thinks he has to go on the ATV. He gets on the ATV, drives around, flips it over, suffers severe injuries again. And, well, the question is, again, is this compensable? And it is compensable because Lorenzo, Lorenzo thought he had to participate. Lorenzo right. thought he had to get on the ATV. This one I love. I come to work every day hoping that my boss is going to say some ATVs. Uh, yeah, let's, yeah. let's go. <laughs> Okay, um, let's move on to the, oh, we have an uh, animation for this one as well. Attention staff, the company picnic is tomorrow, and I expect all of you to be there and play on our soccer team. My goal is to win the company trophy. Boss, my daughter's recital is tomorrow. I can't make the picnic. The memo said the picnic was optional anyway. Winning is not optional to me. I expect you to play, or I will remember it at review time. Okay, remember, I expect us to win. All right, of course, we all knew that was going to happen there. Right. Mike, why don't you walk us through this one, what happens here? Yeah, so here you can see uh, the employees got a memo, and the, the memo said, like, you don't have to participate, but we would like you to come to the, to the event to play soccer. Well, the boss goes around afterwards and tells everyone he expects them to be there, and he expects them to compete, he expects them to win. And the employee tries to get out of it, but he really enforces the idea, like, you've got to be there, right? So, of course, we know what happens. They participate. She gets hurt. This is another example of it's compensable. She would be able to collect because she thought she had to go. Even though the memo said she doesn't, it's clear the boss made it very clear that he wants her to be there. Right. Okay. All right. Let's move on to our next topic, uh, the personal risk doctrine. Uh, this is a big one. This comes up a lot, actually. Um, they're, they're, it's broken down to a couple different areas. You have uh, things that are personal to the petitioner, uh, health concerns. Some people have diabetes. Some people have uh, epilepsy, maybe have seizures. Uh, if those events happen at work, they're generally not compensable. If you have a seizure at work and you fall down, that's not something that, that's going to be compensable. Uh, there's sort of a little clarification that needs to be made there, though. You could have a seizure, fall down, and... If you happen to hit some equipment on the way down or maybe your head hits a pallet mm -hmm. or a machine that you were working on, uh, it could be held to be compensable because of what you actually hit on the way down. So uh, it's sort of fact-sensitive. Again, investigation is important. Uh, certainly going to the prior medical records to see what those health concerns were for that employee uh, that led to this. Uh, I've seen mostly, mostly in the seizure case. That comes yeah. up a lot. Landscapers that are outside, they're predisposed to seizures. Uh, they're working in the heat and stuff like that. And then it becomes sort of a 
you know, is it the heat that caused it? Is it this, the, their predisposition to seizures and stuff like that? So that does come up uh, uh, quite frequently. Uh, the other issue is really like attacks at work. And this comes up uh, more frequent, unfortunately, than, than you'd imagine. Uh, and it's sort of broken down into different categories as well. You have, for example, a scenario where maybe uh, an employee is at a convenience store, he works there, and the store gets robbed. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of just a random act. It's something that will be held to be compensable if that person's injured in the course of that robbery. Um, but if the, the, the attack at work or the assault at work can be found to be personal to that petitioner, uh, that's something you can deny. Um, we have a case that we actually worked on uh, that involves this issue. Uh, the gentleman worked at a, uh, a company that weighs vehicles, a scrapyard. So he weighs the trucks going in, he weighs them going out, he shows up at work one day, and uh, a car pulls up. Gentleman, I guess not gentleman's wrong term to use there. A uh, guy gets out, he's wearing a mask, and he uh, shoots the petitioner twice with a shotgun. It's back in the car and drives away. We, of course, denied this uh, uh, as not being compensable, and the investigation was really interesting because what it revealed was uh, they had surveillance video of that guy getting out of the car and actually moving onto the premises to do the shooting. And when they showed that surveillance video to the petitioner, mm -hmm. he sort of recognized the way the guy moved as someone maybe he knew that he had played basketball with. Or, yeah. yeah, so we were able to show and demonstrate that this was personal to that petitioner. He knew this guy. That guy came there. Mm -hmm. You know, again, there was no robbery. Nothing was missing from the workplace. This was not a commonplace robbery, a random act. Uh, it was something that was personal to him. Yeah. So we were successful in denying that. And, again, it's very fact-sensitive. Investigation is super important. I think you'll notice in all of these, uh, you have to really do your homework, get medical records, get uh, witness statements as to everything that happened, because that's certainly something you can deny. And at a minimum, the more work you get done in that category as far as investigation, even if you're not successful ultimately in the defense, it is great for setting up for, as we discussed, Section 20. Mm -hmm. So. And that's pretty much the goal of getting rid of all these cases is dismissal their section. All right. Uh, there is an animation with this one as well. Let's go through that. Hey, I know you are the one who has been sleeping with my wife. Prepare to die. I have no idea what you are talking about. I am not sleeping with your wife. I saw her phone. You have been awing her all the time. Admit you are having an affair. Jerry, don't shoot him. All those phone calls were about work. We are not sleeping together. You are being crazy. Okay, not a good day for that guy. No. Uh, in fact, it looks like he got hit with a teleportation gun because he just disappeared completely. But, okay, so what's happening here? Um, this is two coworkers. They work together. Uh, the, the, the girl, basically, her husband is jealous. He thinks that she's cheating on him at work. He comes to work uh, with a gun in his, I guess he saw emails or maybe phone logs or something like that. Yeah. He thinks it's the coworker that's, that's cheating on his wife. Uh, so he, of course, shoots that person. The wife is saying, no, we talk about work. That's what those long phone conversations are. We talk about our schedule or whatever it is. And, you know, again, here it's going to be, it's something that's personal to her and potentially to him. Uh, it's something that was caused not as a result of the work environment, but because of the relationship between the husband and wife and whether or not he trusts her and whether or not she's cheating on him and stuff. So this is something you're going to deny. You're going to have witness statements and everything else. You're going to get sort of this, you know, maybe they had divorce proceedings going on. So you can get copies of papers and stuff like that. So, again, facts are sensitive and investigation really important. Okay. Uh, that brings us to our last, last topic, actually, which is one of our favorite topics, which we'll probably do after this webinar, uh, lunch or break time. So go ahead, Mike. Why don't you? Yeah, Joseph. Well, let's talk about lunch, lunch and break time injuries. Uh, the key questions on whether or not lunch or break time injuries are compensable 
is whether time is uh, first paid or unpaid. Uh, number two is whether the employee benefited from the petitioner eating lunch on the premises. And three, uh, where they actually are when they're eating lunch. Are they actually on the employee's premises or not? Okay. So uh, one of my favorite cases in the... Yeah, I know. We talk about this one all the time. Yeah, pretty interesting. Right, let's do the animation, yeah, and, then, well, and then we can teleport and tell you about it. All right, Mike, what's going on in your favorite case here? So this is the Parva Coleman case. So Mrs. Coleman um, thought it was a good idea to eat lunch while she's in the, in the um, lunchroom and spray her hair with hairspray and smoke a cigarette at the same time. As you can see, that's not really a great combination. Uh, the hairspray caught fire, it caught fire to her hair, and what ended up happening was all the employees came to rush to her aid and tried to pat the fire out which led to even more injuries, so she had severe so she, injuries. She not only had the injuries of the burns, but she had the, and the pat down basically assaults by the co-workers. Yeah, yeah, so this went to the, the trial court level, and the issue really was, was the employer benefiting from having them eat lunch in the break room? Right. And uh, the trial court said absolutely not. And they went to the appellate court, and they actually found that it did help them. And But finally, it went to the Supreme Court in New Jersey, and the Supreme Court said, no, this is – not benefiting the employer to have their employees in the break room spraying their hair, hair spraying, smoking cigarettes. So she was not able to uh, get workers' comp benefits for that claim. Okay. All right. So that concludes basically the presentation part of this. Uh, hopefully we've presented sort of a brief overview of the different uh, uh, common defenses that you can raise. Again, raise these defenses, investigate, uh, and, and set up for basically Section 20 settlements is, is sort of the goal here. Uh, we do have, I think, I'm hearing a little bit of time maybe for one or two questions. Uh, let me just see here what questions we have. Again, there's a little box on your computer. You can type in any questions you want. If we don't get to them during the webinar right now, Mike and I will answer them afterwards. We'll get back to you by email. So let me just see what we have here. Okay, we have, all right, we have one question from uh, Tom Gunn. Uh, one of my employees is a delivery man, and while on delivery, he drives off the road uh, he hits a tree getting injured at the hospital. His blood alcohol level is 0.20. Can we deny? All right. So, Tom, what's happening here is, uh, you know, again, investigation is going to be really important. You want to raise the intoxication defense. You do have a reading of uh, 0.20 on his blood alcohol content, which is great. You get copies of those records, uh, the police records from the police department. But you got to look at is the sole reason why he drove off the road. Now, the good thing here is you don't have a, a car accident with another car, which that could be the cause of the accident. Somebody runs a stop sign or something like that. But, you know, is it winter time? Is there snow? Is there ice on the road that caused it? Did a deer run out in the middle of the road? A lot of other things could have caused yeah. this accident or at least contributed to it. So investigation is really important here, I think, Tom. All right. Let me just see here. We got I'll do one, we have time for one more. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, Christian? Uh, Christian asks, uh, my employer sponsors an employee softball team. Uh, where he gives out uniforms and hats. He wants to know if one of the employees gets hurt sliding into home, is this com uh, compensable? Well, Christian, um, this is a recreational uh, defense potentially, but really what it comes down to, is this mandatory or is this, right. does the employee believe this is mandatory? So if every employee has to go, or even the employee uh, himself, he just believes that he has to go because he has to go for his job. It's like a work-related activity that he must go to, then it will be compensable. But if it's strictly volunteer and the employer says, like, oh, you know, no one, you know, you don't have to go, but we deal, 
then it will not be uh, compensable because now it's just a voluntary. Mike, do you think it makes a difference that everybody's wearing uniforms and hats with the company's name on it? or? No, I don't think it's a big deal. It may play a little a small factor into it, but it really comes down to whether he believed it's mandatory or not. Okay. All right. Um, being told by Lauren that we don't have any more time. Uh, so thank you very much for attending our, our webinar. I hope this was helpful in a little way. I hope we answered uh, some of your questions through our presentation. Well, like I said, we'll certainly answer the rest of the questions that anybody might have emailed us in. And it looks like we do have a number of uh, people who did that. So we will get back to you. Uh, just as a heads up, uh, we do have next month's topic. Again, the New York webinar series will be on the third Thursday, uh, the third Monday, sorry, of each month. But for Jersey, it's going to be the going and coming rule, uh, the going and coming defense. Uh, which will be on June 27th. I'm going to be a presenter in that, as well as my associate, Michael Tomasino, uh, who presented with me last month. So uh, we'll see you then. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And, again, hope we helped out. Thank Have you. a good day. Have a good day.